Hello. Hello, everybody. All right. So today we're going to talk about, you won't believe it. We're going to talk about why is there something rather than nothing. And, you know, I know your skepticism is probably warranted. You know, what are the chances <laughs> that I will say anything meaningful that it could potentially add to the conversation? And, uh, you know, the truth is the chances are very low. So, you know, it's a, if hopefully if I say anything whatsoever that isn't completely trivial, you know, hopefully that is uh, itself a high bar to meet. And that's what I'll try to do today. Um, you know, it's a very complex topic. Uh, I figure that I'll uh, uh, indulge in a little bit of ginger in the meantime, both of, uh, you know, lemon ginger smell. And uh, I've also got a, uh, a shot, a shot of ginger to carry me through this very complex, this very difficult subject. And the quality of the day is going to be nothing. Now, nothing as in the experience of trying to conceptualize nothing. And I think it's a very significant type of experience. And uh, for the most part, if you ask a, a grown-up, you know, <laughs> like, you know, what do you think about nothing? You know, nothing itself, like as a concept, as an experience. And um, for the most part, they will be pretty jaded about it. I think like a lot of people will just not take very seriously that, uh, that inquiry. But if you ask a kid, you know, that's where you get usually the, the strong effect sizes where, you know, they, they haven't been, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, burned by confusion yet about it. And uh, I do remember as a kid, uh, you know, other, other kids were pretty receptive to, you know, contemplating the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Why isn't there just nothing? Wouldn't it be simpler if just absolutely nothing existed? But even trying to imagine that state is strange brain teaser. You know, it's, or even worse, it's like a brain zapper. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. And maybe, maybe the fact that it's difficult to conceptualize nothing is a clue. A clue that maybe we're just not thinking about it in the right way. And uh, what I'm going to be talking about today Really, it's uh, it's kind of like I'm, I'm really standing on the shoulders of, of giants here. I mean, like, you know, bringing together, you know, advanced, you know, advanced conceptions of math and physics and a lot of philosophy by, by David Pierce, who basically has a tentative answer to why is there something rather than nothing. And there, there are some things that are new, you know, that we have been discussing at a QRI uh, that I'll be talking about towards the end of the talk that kind of like build on top of everything that has already been said. But, you know, the things that I'm going to present to you even before that, I suspect most people haven't really considered and hopefully is going to be, you know, a genuinely interesting and novel uh, way of approaching this entire, you know, problem space, the problem of existence itself. And let's uh, dig into it. Okay, so first of all is... I think that the question, why is there something rather than nothing, is a perfectly meaningful, perfectly legitimate question. A lot of people say, you know, it, it goes out of kind of the, 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 the logical scheme that, you know, like uh, an argument can potentially encompass. And, you know, it's uh, too tautologically, or too tautologically, you know, consistent or it's too basic. And they, they might say things like that. 
to try to dismiss the question. And to a large extent, I think that's kind of a failure of the imagination. And also just being, you know, jaded and burnt out, you know, having thought about it and maybe mapped out a little bit, you know, possible arguments and ways of thinking about this, but being just frustrated by it. And really, when it comes down to it, you know, the kind of first things that people think about, you know, when you ask the question, why is there something that nothing is like, okay, yeah, you break it down into, you know, various possibilities, you know, one is, you know, everything has already, everything has always existed and always will. And in that sense, you know, there's no beginning to explain, you know, what you have to explain is, you know, the existence of everything, including, you know, infinite time, uh, both, you know, maybe, let's say in the future and the past, or, you know, if there was a beginning, that's also when it gets like really strange and trippy too, because, you know, how did that, you know, get kickstarted? You know, if nothing existed before it, you know, what kind of um, process made it, you know, all of a sudden <laughs> kickstarted the, the evolution of the universe? And, you know, somewhere in here, in fact, I think there is a powerful argument for eternalism, which is a philosophy of time uh, that says that basically directions like, you know, left and right and, and uh, front and back are more or less equivalent to, you know, before and after that really there's kind of like, you know, directions in these, you know, maybe four dimensional manifold or, you know, something more complicated. But the point is that um, the present is just as real as every other moment in space time or in the multiverse. And, and in that sense, you know, you don't really have to explain why it began because there's nothing ontologically special about the beginning of the universe. You know, the entirety of it is, in a sense, equally mysterious. But uh, it does emphasize that, to some extent, if you want to address the question of why is there something rather than nothing, the language of causality is potentially doomed. You know, because with the language of causality, you're trying to explain why something is the case by explaining what were the you know underlying conditions that made it a likely outcome and more so you know given those conditions and given rules for evolving those conditions you know you, you basically want you know a combination of rules and pre-existing conditions that make the observables very likely you know basic you know Bayesian epistemology and so on and, and to a large extent the language of causality and analyzing problems in terms of causality is what our natural thinking process does. That's kind of our habit of thinking. That's usually how we go about explaining, you know, big questions, even like, you know, why did we evolve uh, from, you know, hominids? And why are we, you know, vertebrates uh, as opposed to invertebrates? Or, you know, all of these interesting questions, yeah, they can have answers in the language of causality. And I definitely don't want to dismiss that. But when it comes to the big question, why is there something rather than nothing? You know, in either of the two conditions, okay, like maybe, you know, causal events extend all the way infinitely back or they start at some point in the past. <clears throat> either way, the language of causality just doesn't seem to apply to the broader question of why the whole thing exists. So instead of that, I would recommend maybe as a guiding, you know, North Star, not necessarily the final answer, but rather than to think of it in terms of the language of causality, think of it in terms of the language of implication, you know, logical implication. So like, think more about a mathematical proof 
Although what we're going to do is actually kind of more general than a mathematical proof. It's some kind of like hyper proof of some sort. Uh, versus, you know, the an explanation style that looks at pre-existing conditions and rules that, that make them evolve and, you know, probabilities and things like that. So like that's unlikely to give us much insight here. It's much more likely that, you know, there is some deep fundamental reason why, in some sense, nothingness would entail, would imply the existence of us and everything. Okay, so that's a, that's an important note uh, to, to put it out there. Um, I also want to emphasize that uh, some people come up with kind of a an attempt of, a, of an approach to this problem, which is to say that maybe we don't exist. Consciousness is an illusion to begin with, and reality is an illusion. Now, I don't go that route because I do think moments of experience are real. That's what you are. That is what I am. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's a grave mistake, you know, to actually not, you know, consider consciousness something, something real and hopefully with like very regular laws that we can understand and, uh, and, uh, and make sense of. Uh, but there is something tricky here that is important to address, and that is that consciousness also has models of itself. And those models do generate, for the most part, you know, illusory type representations of what even consciousness is. And uh, in, in this sense, there are some aspects of experience that are indeed, yeah, quite uh, illusory. And it's important to recognize that. And uh, here, definitely, I, I tend to use as a guide or at the very least an inspiration, you know, Buddhism and the, the, the three characteristics of existence that uh, basically they say, if you don't understand these three characteristics of existence, you will be hopelessly confused and, and more so be constantly kind of a generate, be generating a suffering by this misconception. Basically, there's going to be this dissonance between what's actually there and what you want it to be there and what you're expecting there to be. And uh, that is going to generate problems. So these three characteristics are no self, that, you know, there is no impermanent, immutable, metaphysical self that continues to exist over time and is separate than everything else. And uh, we have covered that. I mean, there's a lot of videos in my channel and in, in QRI and quality computing and a lot to discuss, you know, personal identity and the illusory nature at the very least of, you know, closed individualism. This idea that you start existing when you're born and you stop existing when you die. Uh, more likely, in a sense, is that there are these different snapshots of experience. And, you know, it's kind of uh, two sides of the same coin. You can either see reality as a collection of, you know, snapshots of experience, or you can see it as pure consciousness manifesting in all of these different ways. Um, and in that sense, you know, they might be kind of equivalent in, in a deep way. But... Um, the, the point to make is that, yeah, no self. And you, if you do believe in a self, you may be closing off a whole explanation space for explaining why is there something rather than nothing. You know, it may actually be difficult to overcome that. Uh, the other one is, the other two are insatisfactoriness, in, in, in basically that no sensation will ever fully, truly satisfy permanently. You know, there's nothing you can feel that will make everything okay forever you know maybe mdma will make it feel okay for <laughs> for a while <laughs> but it's not gonna be forever you know and uh and that's uh that's important you know that uh there's no true 
ultimate you know satisfaction you know as soon as there is like information and 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 sensation uh whatever satisfaction it delivers is impermanent and finally is impermanent itself that's like the third the third characteristic that uh, nothing truly you know fundamentally stays the same and you know if you ask a, a buddhist monk they will say that even our you know the the idea that there's kind of this stream of consciousness that is like slowly changing there's kind of a sheep of the seals type of situation even that is you know saying too much that in reality there is you know countless you know we're talking about perhaps like thousand micro phenomenological blips per second and that our experience is kind of this jumbled up you know attempt at you know, it's snapping together a narrative out of these like microphenomenological blips. And uh, I kind of resonate with that. I mean, in the moments of experience view of personal identity called empty individualism, uh, you know, the amount of snapshots of experience that there is in a given second, given second might be, yeah, in the order of thousands. You know, there's like lots of little flashes and it's kind of like a TV with uh, the various frames. And uh, I should emphasize too that each of the frames contains the illusion of the continuity and the illusion of the, you know, the experience of time. And I have a video about that if you're interested about time specifically and how it's implemented in consciousness. So, you know, in, in this sense, yes, if you approach reality with a kind of one of those misconceptions, you know, that either there's something fundamentally and truly permanent over time, or there is a fundamental ontological self or that things satisfy permanently, I do think, yeah, that causes some type of dissonance. Um, it, it causes kind of these micro-phenomenological contractions that accumulate over time and in the end make you very frustrated. And that's why, you know, meditating and trying to iron out these misconceptions actually benefits your, your, your well-being, but also, I think, the clarity of your thinking about how you, you make sense of reality. Okay. So <laughs> let's uh, continue in this path. Okay, so those are kind of uh, misconceptions and, and issues that we have with, uh, with how we think about this. But, you know, maybe it's the case that nothing is really not a straightforward thing. Um, and uh, the fact that it's difficult for us to imagine nothing is not tautologically the case. It's more like a hint that... There's something about reality that is kind of a huge blind spot to our normal states of state of consciousness uh, or, you know, discursive, logical, you know, uh, causal state of consciousness or a conscious state of consciousness that looks causal explanations and so on. There's like big blind spots about explanatory styles and possible ontological objects in reality and that nothing may just be in one of those kind of blind spots but it may be possible as well to overcome that uh, by basically taking these very seriously and just kind of avoiding the the typical tropes the typical you know grooves of of thought that we have um and uh in this sense yeah basically the the medium of thought basically the quality of your thinking and uh I don't mean to say that just in a in a scale, you know, like oh, low quality thinking, high quality thinking. No, no, I mean it, in in a very rich description. What are the, you know, pictures, either you know visual or tactile or auditory or synesthetic or something else that come up when you are trying to model some aspect of reality, 
And, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Richard Feynman because he had a kind of this tremendous introspective ability to recognize that when he was introspecting about, you know, physics, trying to make, make a model of a particular thing such as temperature or, you know, you know, chemical valence or something like that, that he needed to find the right pictures in order to fully understand it. And of course, like when you get down to something like quantum mechanics, you know, most of the typical common pictures that people have, such as like waves and particles and forces, which is, yeah, kind of like what we see at the macroscopic level, they don't fit the behavior of, you know, the way in which the, the wave function of quantum mechanics evolves. It just is not just kind of like the paradoxical. I mean, I, I definitely think it's a mistake to even talk about like wave particle duality and things like that. I think that's uh, there's a misconception. It's also an invitation to a lot of, I think, not very fruitful speculation. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I can just say that, you know, maybe 10% of presentations at the science of consciousness, for example, rely on some kind of confused notion that there is this weird paradox of, uh, you know, particle and, and wave and there's that duality here. Whereas, no, it's more that, you know, the evolution of the, universal wave function of quantum mechanics has wave-like and particle-like properties, but it's not this paradoxical thing that mixes both. It's like, no, it's actually, you know, the way in which a field is evolving according to the Schrodinger equation, and it has a particular shape. And that shape just happens to, in some circumstances, produce particle-like behavior, not exactly particle, but particle-like and wave-like behavior in other circumstances. Uh, so in that sense, uh, what I'm calling out here is the the importance of recognizing the limitations of your implicit models, of your pictures of reality. And when we talk about why is there something rather than nothing, I think partly the reason why people mentally you know, shut down, why they turn off their brain and think like, oh, that's unknowable, is because in their library of mental pictures and models, nothing <laughs> can even approach or touch <laughs> this question and yeah that of course makes it very you know frustrating the answer however i think is get better pictures <laughs> not abandon the quest get better pictures okay um i mean and yeah i have brought this book before um amusing ourselves to death is more relevant today than it has ever been um which is about like how the the medium by which information is presented influences basically how the truth is constructed. Obviously, right now we're experiencing huge side effects of mass delusions of all sorts uh, because of the way in which the misinformation gets, you know, evolutionarily amplified on <laughs> on the internet. But uh, that's a bit beside the point. Uh, this is more general. I mean, it, it's not only about like hey, you're going to have like some misinformation problems if you have certain mediums of communication. It's more that the medium of communication will inherently curtail some ways of thinking. And the worst way in which it can do that is to convince you that there's only a few ways of thinking, whereas actually it's a very open space. There's a lot of new ways of thinking that you can come up with if you just uh, set your mind to it. I'm just going to read a, a quick quote from here, which is... My argument is limited to saying that a major new medium changes the structure of discourse. Yeah, so like if we have a, a new medium, you know, whether it's me communication medium or even 
thought medium. It's going to modify the nature of discourse. It does so by encouraging certain uses of the intellect, by favoring certain definitions of intelligence and wisdom, and by demanding a certain kind of content. In a phrase, by creating a new form of truth-telling. And, yeah, so when you think about why is there something rather than nothing, remember that if the frustration bubbles up right away, I think it's because the truth-telling uh, metaphors that we have are just, in, you know, insufficient to tackle this problem. But you've got to be open-minded. Okay, so let's get on to the answer, you know, the big reveal why is there something rather than nothing, according to David Pierce, is this whole idea called zero ontology. And this is not to say that nothing is real, which uh, would be kind of a, a cop-out. Rather, is to say we need to enrich our conception of what nothing is, what nothing could be. And uh, one of the interesting kind of judo moves that uh, David Pierce does in his uh, wonderful essays about this is to recognize that you can frame what nothing is, is in terms of something like information as opposed to, you know, physicality. And he talks about how uh, zero information is in some sense equivalent to all possibilities at once in superposition. And uh, the concrete example here is that if you have a, you know, a chessboard and somebody tells you, and you know nothing about you know, the state of the chessboard, and then somebody tells you that you know, there's a rook in this square over here, that is a lot of information because it rules out a whole set of possible you know, board positions and configurations. And, uh, you know, you may even infer like some aspects about, you know, what's going on in the game just by knowing that there's a, a rook over there. But the point is that in this view, information means to rule out possibilities. And that zero information being the case, and that might be, you know, an absolutely necessary aspect of existence, that there is just zero information, that may entail, again, not cause, but entail, implicate the existence of all possibilities in superposition. And now, this is a clever idea. It's, it's fun to think about. But uh, for the most part, you know, and rightfully, people will generally dismiss it as, you know, kind of a, just a a fantasy or a cop-out or something like that, they will say, yeah, but I mean, when you look at, you know, matter and energy, there's a lot to explain. That's just not nothing, right? Like if, if we, uh, basically there's like a lot of pre-existing information in the universe. So like this idea that there's truly no information and that that's why, you know, everything exists in superposition doesn't seem to hold up at least on a superficial analysis. But... <laughs> What makes his theory and his approach in particular so incredibly compelling is that it's actually grounded in physics, math, and phenomenology. So I'm going to explain one at a time. So first of all, math. I mean, it's uh, kind of fascinating 
you know, it took a while for people to come up with uh, zero, and it was uh, invented in uh, invented slash discovered in several culture cultures in parallel. Um, so there's kind of it's almost kind of like a a conceptual blocker. But once you come up with zero, mathematically, so many other things open up. You know, from you know, kind of like positional or like digital, you know, decimal numbers or something like that all the way up to, you know, category theory reinterpreted in terms of, um, you know, partial doubt zeros. And, you know, that's a that's a rabbit hole right there. But a simple example is just how uh, there's been attempts to basically reconstruct all of arithmetic based on the empty set that, uh, you know, you can kind of think of a given number as a way of taking the set of the empty set together with, let's say, the empty set. And you kind of recursively can create higher and higher quote-unquote numbers that are like fundamentally just different nestings of the empty set. So in that sense, you know, maybe in math, it's kind of true that zero in math entails the rest of math. One example he also puts in, 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 in his essay is like, if you have like, you know, the number 42, that entails, it implicates the existence of every other number too. You know, you, you cannot just have 43 or 42. You know, 42 implies 43 and implies 44 and so on. So, you know, in some sense, the existence of any given number is logically equivalent and uh, implicates the existence of every other number and every other possible extension you could produce out of it. So he basically says that, yeah, you know, in math, zero, the empty set entails all of math. And okay, okay, okay. So that's, that's an interesting, you know, perspective. How about physics? Okay, in physics, it's uh, pretty, pretty weird, pretty weird. Um, because this is empirical, you know, this is not, you know, um, imagined, but uh, as far as it can be measured, um, and looked around in, in the universe, uh, it does seem to be the case that the total electric charge of the universe is zero. The total energy, once you take into account, you know, uh, potential energy and the energy stored in space-time, the total energy of the universe is zero as well. The total momentum in the universe, if you add up all of the, you know, all of the momentum vectors of all of the the entirety of the mass in the universe it comes out to be zero in some sense there's no moment no net momentum the angular momentum too and uh if you look at you know all of these different state variables um and uh i guess like fundamental properties of physics a lot of them seem to be you know fundamentally uh you know capable of cancel canceling themselves out in the sense that there is a net zero amount uh, now this may not work for everything i mean like there is this huge puzzle in physics of why there is matter uh so much matter relative to antimatter because matter and antimatter they cancel each other out and uh you know if you excite the quantum vacuum you can get all of a sudden you know matter and antimatter pairs um but usually they tend to you know uh, uh, annihilate each other and create photons just like constantly, you know, and in that sense, uh, it's really weird that you have so much mass in this universe that is in the form of, you know, uh, matter as opposed to antimatter. And that that's a big puzzle. 
you know, but the sort of solutions that we might expect here is that in some strange way, the antimatter equivalent of the universe is, you know, out there, it exists, you know, not necessarily in a given direction, we could be, you know, in a different dimension, in a different way of factoring uh, how the, the, the entirety of the, you know, multiverse is constructed, such that, yeah, maybe we are in kind of the foliation where matter is happening and there's like another foliation where antimatter is happening we don't know okay so i just want to point out that okay matter continues to be a mystery but the other properties you know it's kind of stunning right like net energy net you know uh electric charge net momentum etc now even even here though the 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 you know the the similarity with zero goes way deeper and this is a huge rabbit hole in physics because um, you also have basically symmetries underlying preservation laws. And, and in a sense, symmetries, in some sense, also entail some kind of a cancelling out of possibilities. And, uh, you know, there's Noether's theorem about how, you know, any local symmetry entails a global symmetry uh, and so on. You know, like that things are, uh, the laws of physics stay the same over time, entails preservation of energy, just as, a, just as an example or I believe translational symmetry entails, you know, the preservation of momentum and so on. So deep down, in a sense, you could say that these quantities are the manifestations of these more fundamental preservations, these invariances that also fundamentally turn out to be equivalent with zero in a, you know, in a, in a fundamental sense. Um, but even deeper, I mean, if you look at quantum field theory, and uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful, you know, when it comes to generating new pictures to make sense of reality, I, I highly recommend this YouTube channel. It's called uh, Science Click English. I don't understand the title, but oh, it's wonderful. I mean, uh, if uh, three blue, one brown is kind of world class, uh, you know, college or early college math, you know, visualizations and explanations, I would say, yeah, you know, Science Click English is kind of world class physics, you know, but, they, re they recently just finished uh, finished out putting a fantastic uh, series on the math of general relativity. Anyway, fantastic content, 10 out of 10, super recommended. And they have this fantastic video about quantum field theory that uh, explains it in, in a very, very visual way about like how, you know, each of the fields that underlie reality upon which, uh, you know, all different types of uh, particles get Im implemented um, are, uh, find their substrate, you could say. Um, they're all, in a sense, implied by fundamental symmetries. Basically, the frame invariance properties of, uh, of space-time and, and relativity uh, only allows certain mathematical objects to actually uh, be able to implement a field that allows those invariances to be maintained. So, you know, the fact that we have, you know, the Higgs field and the electric field, the magnetic field and and so on, you know, strong force, weak force, you know, all, all of these, like, is not arbitrary. That is actually entailed by symmetry, is entailed by this, you know, fundamental geometric preservation of the structure of reality. And that is, like, so incredibly crazy that before you knew that, you know, physics seems so arbitrary, you know, like 12 particles of matter or like 24, depending on how you count. And, you know, they have all these like very strange interactions with one another. It seems like 
the description of the standard model is very, very information dense. You know, it's kind of, where did that come from? Uh, but uh, when you look at it through the lens of symmetries in fields, it actually falls out of the math that that's like one of the only few ways in which it could possibly be if these symmetries were to be preserved. Now, there are some constants, um, you know, some specific con constants such as, you know, the rest mass of the, the electron and things like that, that um, you cannot derive from these symmetries. And that is bizarre. That does seem to be kind of information out of nowhere. But at least a huge chunk of what seemed arbitrary in physics kind of collapses <laughs> into this very, very simple explanation, which is, yes, this is how reality has to be if it, if, if it is to preserve, you know, relativistic symmetries, which are in a sense something that, you know, is logically entailed. I mean, in that sense, uh, you know, the rationalist, uh, you know, Descartes, you know, trying to think the universe out of, you know, it's his mind without necessarily investigating it empirically, a super, you know, Descartes might be able to actually go all the way to quantum field theory, but perhaps, you know, not know... Um, like the the name which constants uh actually implement these universe in particular you know that that's the sort of thing that this sort of reasoning uh makes you realize um yeah so basically in in, in this frame you know the the various uh, possible spins are correspond to the various symmetry groups that preserve the the appropriate symmetries of space-time and uh but it goes even deeper i mean this is in a sense talking about the fields but also just how the fields evolve according to quantum mechanics and uh, here's, you know, Richard Feynman comes again. Uh, like if you, if you look at, if you look at, yeah, basically uh, the path integral formulation of quantum mechanics, uh, I highly, highly recommend watching Feynman's quantum electrodynamics series on YouTube or reading, you know, his lectures on physics. It's wonderful explanations that when it comes down to it, you know, the reason why light travels through the shortest path through these like geometric geodesics is not that there that you know light is kind of omniscient and can anticipate where it is uh, going to be it's very bizarre right like why how can light know what is going to be the the shortest path and the the explanation is that actually light goes through every possible path at once as well as like electrons and every particle they they go through every possible path at once constrained by, you know, the ways in which you have been probing it, you know, constrained by boundary conditions imposed by how you're measuring it, uh, you know, where it started, where it ended, what kind of constraint, or is there is it one slit or double slit and things like that. Like those would be the boundary conditions, but keeping those certain, quote unquote, everything else is as uninformative as possible. It's almost like nature is doing everything it can possibly do in order to avoid generating information. <laughs> you know, it's like every time you probe like other pieces in the, in the, in the, in the, in the chessboard, nature says, oh, and by the way, all of the other possibilities remain a live option. And in fact, if you want to calculate probabilities of where to find particular particles, you have to literally consider every possible configuration, superimpose it, then doing this weird thing, which is, you know, squaring the amplitude of the resulting wave, and that gives you the probability of finding <laughs> the particular 
particle in a given place. Um, super weird, quote unquote, the wave function, quote unquote, collapses. Uh, that itself, by the way, would generate information. And is one of the reasons why David Pierce actually thinks that, you know, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, where, you know, literally there's the wave function that uh, is a probabilistic uh, kind of position of, of, uh, of particles, and when you measure it, it collapses, uh, that that is really an illusion of something even deeper happening that does preserve, you know, information, and it also preserves uh, the symmetries of reality. You know, you don't get this uh, everything out of nowhere, uh, information out of nowhere. And that is the decoherence program. Uh, I guess like more commonly known as, you know, the Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics and uh, the multiverse theory. You know, all of the possibilities happen. And that kind of sounds implausible. But then again, why on earth? are like particles apparently doing every possible movement they could. I mean, like when you look at how, you know, quantum mechanics is formalized here, it's not only, you know, like all the possible paths of an electron, it's also all the ways the electron could have interacted, even with itself, and how it can interacted with, you know, particles that pop out of existence, out of, you know, the quantum vacuum, where you have like a, you know, an electron and a positron, you know, pop out of nowhere, and that also interacts with the, with the electron and, and so on and so forth every possibility you know so it's almost kind of a when you're looking at this at this uh from a certain point of view you could say that well actually all of the possibilities always happen these boundary conditions that we're talking about that are basically defining the things that you do know those are kind of uh pinches in the wave function that basically make it so that uh, kind of the, the stream goes in both directions, uh, so to speak. So you have basically this decoherence process, um, but that in reality, there's no pinches. You know, at the very biggest scale, there's no boundary condition. The boundary conditions are local. I mean, like when this electron is doing every possible path, well, you know, in that one path where, you know, maybe it, uh, uh, you know, uh, interacted with a, a positron that came out of nowhere and, you know, together with an electron and so on, you know, in that path, there's going to be, you know, boundary conditions that from its point of view, the re however the rest of reality is going to look like, but that in the aggregate, in totality, there is no boundary condition. So this picture of reality is crazy. I mean, now it's, you're talking about how the fact that there's no constraint at all that, you know, there's nothing, no information that is saying this is here, but nothing else uh, is here because this is already here. It's basically constraining, you know, the, the exclusionary principle. Because there's none of that, then all of the possibilities become realized. Yeah, and this is, again, kind of the language of implication that uh, probably... It's probably worth considering. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, this is like well known in, in, in physics. I mean, this is, I'm not making this up. There's like a lot of like, you know, highly cited articles. Like, for example, like, I believe one is titled, yeah, nothing ever happens in the, um, you know, in the Everett multiverse. Uh, Max Tegmark has talked about this, you know, how there's cer certain ways of factoring the Schrodinger uh, equation and the universal wave function that make it so that basically nothing is happening. There's just nothing is happening. But, you know, from certain cuts, some ways of, you know, refactoring that 
nothingness, there's a lot of extremely intricate happenings. But that in the end, in the, in the final analysis, they kind of, in some sense, cancel each other out. They lead to these fully unconstrained fundamental state. And what is that? <laughs> well, that might be the nothing we've been looking for. The nothing we've been looking for is that fully unconstrained superposition of all possibilities has no information. Okay, so that's great. <laughs> that's in physics. Now let's move on to phenomenology, um, which is something that, yeah, you kind of have to verify for yourself. But, uh, well, and here's a bit of a plug uh, for if you're interested in uh, donating to QRI, you can get some of these uh, stickers. But, uh, you know, I'm a fan of, uh, you know, the concept behind the logo, which is understanding the entire state space of consciousness, you know, all possibilities of experience. And one of the things that you see here is what's called the CLAB color space, which is basically a Euclidean rendition of all the possible uh, phenomenal colors. And you will see that it's a circle, is not a line. Uh, basically, the reason is that magenta here will connect, you know, blue and red um, or purple and red. And, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, there's kind of this illusory thing that if you see a rainbow, it actually doesn't have the color magenta. But if you were to add, you know, the color, you know, the light frequencies at the top and at the bottom, you will see magenta, which is not in there. Uh, meaning that, of course, the experience of color is not experiencing directly frequencies of light, is actually its own state space. And its geometry is not a line with a you know lower bound and an upper bound. It's a circle. Actually, it's a 3D Euclidean space. Uh, if you consider brightness and uh, dimness as well, uh, and dark, like black and white, essentially. But uh, yeah, broadly speaking, it connects. And uh, <laughs> if you take the right combination of psychedelic drugs, <laughs> you will see lots of rainbows in your visual field. And sometimes they will kind of cancel out. You know, you may have kind of this energized feeling of empty space that then kind of creates a rainbow and you see all of the colors around it and then it may collapse again. I mean, this happens on a sufficient dose of LSD. People report these. Um, and uh, as I'll talk about a little bit more in, in, in a second, 5-MeO-DMT uh, may produce this in quite a reliable way. Um, but essentially what I'm getting at here is that the phenomenal color in some sense can be mathematically described in terms of a symmetry group, which in this case would be, you know, 3D, uh, 3D Euclidean symmetry group or, rep or representation of that symmetry group. And um, that geometry is in some sense what entails the fact that all of the phenomenal colors added simultaneously are equivalent with this weird thing that is pure consciousness or formless consciousness. And, uh, you know, we don't know exactly what the geometric uh, shape of different state spaces look like besides uh, color. There's like some notion for sound, there's some notion for uh, tactile sensations, but it's not super well understood. But the idea would be that, you know, every quilia variety you know, color, sen you know, sen senses, uh, 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 audio, etc., etc. They all, in a sense, will correspond to particular symmetry groups. 
and they all, from a certain point of view, can be, ma be made to cancel each other out. <clears throat> so, <laughs> excuse me for a second. Um, uh, so, phenomenologically, at least with color, but potentially with many other modalities, you have these very weird zero ontology property too. That all of the possible quality of all of the possible quality of values cancel each other out into pure consciousness, which has no information. And uh, I do want to, you know, point out that it's kind of fascinating that, you know, jhanas, for example, these like advanced concentration states in meditation, they are often described in terms of extremely low amounts of information, as well. Basically, the more you purify your samskaras, your basically karma, your impressions and contractions of awareness, you're kind of like slowly ironing out the spatial field of your experience. And uh, if you do that enough, you can get a field that is basically so smooth that energy and information doesn't dissipate. So you can basically put in a lot of information in it without like the imperfections making it, you know, the information transfer uh, to basically dissipate energy and it can basically work as a kind of resonance box that you add more and more and more energy and all of a sudden you get these you know phase transitions into other states of consciousness that are their building blocks are in a sense much more smooth and symmetrical and you know if you continue doing that process and you know purifying and purifying and you know ironing out in higher and higher dimensions uh, of experience you know Eventually, you get to these like 8th jhana, ninth jhana. I mean, already the 7th jhana described as uh, uh, nothingness, the experience of nothingness, which uh, people, is, you know, is very, very strange. And, it, you know, in some sense, uh, maybe it's more related to actually what we care about here, which is finding a correct picture for understanding nothing. Well, the 7th jhana might be a good lead in here. Uh, well, nothingness, it contains close to no information and there's like very little to report about it <laughs> other than it felt very restful, very peaceful, it felt nice, but it's not because it felt actively so, you know, but it had like some kind of transcendent bliss quality to it that is very hard to put into words. And then the eighth jhana, it's even stranger, which is the experience of neither something nor nothing, where you're not even reifying nothing. And uh, yeah, I mean, basically, some people even describe a ninth jhana, which is completely transcendent and not even that, you know, does any any justice to it in, in any way whatsoever. But the point is that kind of there seems to be this convergence point, you know, towards samadhi and uh, quote unquote nirvana, where there's just no information there, just completely no information. So in consciousness, too, you know, this nothingness seems to be seems to be very important, very, very, very important to understand the entire state space. As a, I think I described this in another video, but briefly, I mean, if you actually want to organize the state space of consciousness, that nothingness point, that uh, center of the spinning worlds, so to speak, is the best place to start. And in a sense, because of the hyperbolic geometric structure of the state space of consciousness, which I don't have time to, to go into why it's hyperbolic, but basically it, it, it entails that the closest path between any, any two arbitrary experiences, let's say you right now versus a, a lizard that is drunk and on 
DMT at the same time, you know, like a pretty exotic, you know, different species, different states and so on. Um, maybe at schizophrenic lizard even, you know, whatever, like a very different, you know, state of consciousness. The closest path between you and that in terms of like edit distance, you know, like little alterations you could do to it to go from one to the other is going to get really close, very close to basically the zero state, the zero information state. Basically, there's kind of this huge seeming detour. Uh, it's actually not a detour because it's a straight line in, in that space, but it's going to get really close to the, the zero point. So basically, if you want to understand the middle point between any experience, understanding these kind of transcendent zero information state is quintessential, is very, very important. It's one of the perhaps the most important piece of the puzzle for, for state space exploration. Um, now, up to this, I would say this is kind of a zero ontology by, by David Pierce. And, you know, other people explore this uh, explanation space. Uh, there's also a universe from nothing by uh, uh, Krau Krauser, I believe. And, uh, and, you know, obviously Buddhism and uh, Shenzhen Yang and even people uh, like Leo Gura. Yeah, you know, they, a lot of people in, in this space who have access to a lot of exotic states of consciousness and think deeply about these tend to kind of like point towards this general notion of there's something really significant about nothing and nothing is not what you thought it was to begin with. That there is like a post-theoretical or post-experiential uh, nothing that is very significant. But the step that I want to take uh, and kind of hopefully contribute to this conversation besides, you know, just explaining it, which obviously it's uh, helpful uh, to, to the conversation, but it's uh, that I, I think this is very amenable to the empirical method and, uh, I mean, David Pierce emphasizes the empirical method here more in physics. I mean, he says, if any deviation whatsoever is ever found of the unitary dynamic of the evolution of the universal wave function, that would rule out zero ontology. Like, it would entail that there's actually generation of information. But as of now, zero ontology seems to hold up you know, in physics across the board. Well, except that's, you know, sneaky thing about there being matter versus antimatter. But, uh, you know, that that's not yet a proof. You know, we, we still have to figure that out. But but uh, there's no, like, empirical direct violation of any of the implications of zero ontology. And that is trippy. So trippy. I don't know. I was, I was going to say trippy as hell, but it's also trippy as heaven. I mean, it's trippy as everything. <laughs> it's it's as, as trippy as everything, literally. <laughs> Uh, um, okay, so, but the empirical method that I suggest is phenomenological. I mean, you know, first with the neural correlates of consciousness and then eventually m mapping it out towards the, you know, uh, 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 fundamental fields of quantum mechanics. But I do think that if we, you know, generate in a super Shulgin academy, so to speak, with a lot of like top physicists, you know, people like Feynman and, yeah, you know, philosophers, like very advanced philosophers uh, and, you know, mathematicians and uh, artists as well for, for complicated reasons and computer scientists. But, you know, a concentrated effort to standardize these high energy, super low information states, which, by the way, are also very blissful and potentially very help helpful for mental health and, uh, <laughs> and improving, uh, you know, our sense of well-being. Uh, anyway, there's a lot of reasons why to do this, but uh, even if you were just concerned with the question of why there's something rather than nothing, which, by the way, it is kind of a 
a trivia. I mean, it's a fun, fascinating question, but right now there's suffering going on, so it's not the priority. But okay, even if you were only concerned with that and you were like a super billionaire, I would recommend, yeah, I mean, get a, a massive team of a thousand, you know, physicists and mathematicians and computer scientists and philosophers and get them to standardize this zero ontology state with something like 5MeO DMT and Janus and look at it from every point of view. Even further, you know, try to measure, for example, the, the geometry of the electromagnetic field when you're experiencing this zero ontology state. Like that's the sort of thing that is a no brainer <laughs> once you think very deeply about this, especially if you experience these states and recognize their profound, profound significance. Um, and yeah, roughly my claim here, and uh, one of the reasons why I'm both uh, assigned a lot of credence to both zero ontology and the symmetry theory of valence is that a lot of these bizarre kind of like equivalences between an energized pure consciousness and the full spectrum of every quillian modality that happens a lot in something like a 5-MeO DMT state you can you know flicker between rainbow world so to speak all of the colors in this prismatic crazy way and then kind of look at it from a certain size and certain side and uh, and you get a uh, uh you know kind of like pushing the light back into the prism, so to speak. So all of the colors converge and you get white. I mean, the metaphor has its limits, but that's like roughly what it feels like. You kind of twist the prism of reality somehow that enables all of these, you know, multiplicity of sensation and diversified, you know, distinctions of experience to reconverge into pure nothingness or, you know, pure awareness and, uh, yeah, I mean, if we can standardize that and study it, I expect that we will do a lot of progress in, you know, these fundamental questions in philosophy and in physics, because at this point, we will be able to even perhaps, you know, analyze the fundamental symmetries of quantum fields in the terms of the kind of operations that can happen, you know, very close to this uh, zero space. And of course, like, you know, the zero point, the, you know, zero ontological zero information state of consciousness it's so important that naturally you know any physicist who stumbles upon it and is serious about figuring out consciousness and it's you know physical equivalence and whatnot yeah i think that's just going to stand out as like yeah it's a it's an obviously you know first shelling point or like low-hanging fruit to look into um i guess uh i, I want to maybe um conclude yeah with kind of a, a little bit of a discussion about like you know god <laughs> god i mean god the creator in a sense is kind of an attempt at answering these why is there something rather than nothing um is also a way of uh, trying to have persistent meaning which is sometimes a, a losing battle but um um in a sense uh yeah that's the type of explanatory style that says reality started at a certain point because something happened you know this transcendent quote-unquote, outside time, outside space being. But of course, if thoughts and uh, desires and so on are constructed in, in sequence, then of course there's a sense in which that, of course, had to have time for it to create, a, you know, the Big Bang. So, you know, that explanation space may not really work out, but, you know, God as perhaps not a active kind of entity with personal attributes, but rather as an impersonal ultimate principle 
for why we exist, I think the zero ontological state is perhaps a very good approximation of, you know, as good as it gets when it comes to understanding what God is. And, uh, you know, there's kind of a lot of, uh, you can get into the weeds here because there's some distinction between, let's say, you know, token identity versus type identity. You know, in token identity, each instance of a certain mathematical object is going to be a different entity, whereas in, in type, they're all the same. Uh, and uh, there's a very trippy perspective that is that maybe, you know, this zero information state of consciousness in some sense is the one and the same, no matter how it is, quote unquote, generated. That is not so much that, you know, when you enter that state, you're generating it and creating a new copy of the zero information state. It's more that you're doing something peculiar to kind of the topology of of your fields that make it point towards the zero point. And any other experience that has ever done that is going to be pointing to the same, you know, fundamental, universal, zero ontological state, um, which uh, personally freaks me out to some extent because it makes me feel that, you know, next time I stumbled upon that experience again is going to be, you know, completely underdetermined who I become afterwards. It's also underdetermined who I was before. You know, there's a symmetry there. But somehow, you know, with my evolutionary programming, and my self models, it freaks out my, you know, my kind of naive ego, uh, because he's like, oh, gosh, then I will, you know, become, you know, people and animals that I may not want to become, you know, being in a factory farm just to throw out a possibility, you know. Um, then again, uh, once you do experience something like a zero ontological state uh, of consciousness, um, you're kind of forced to come into pe- you know to peace with that with that notion that you know in in some sense um it's just really bizarre for example like why you find where you are right now how did you get in there what did you do to get in there you know and i bet that you have no idea you know you may remember kind of like what you did yesterday <laughs> that led you to be where you are here but why you as a consciousness why do you find yourself entangled in any way whatsoever with that particular timeline? And I think in some sense, you know, the answer might be that, well, actually, you're in every timeline at once. You are this one universal electron <laughs> that is moving backwards and forwards in time in patterns of self-interference. And in that sense, yeah, you may not have uh, any option but to be the entirety of everything. Uh one experience at a time but you're still everything so it's almost perhaps like exposure therapy uh you know if you experience this uh zero ontology you know zero information state of consciousness more often in some sense it may allow your animal self so to speak to come to terms with kind of the you know universality of consciousness or something like that uh, or I, I don't know, maybe it, it I, I don't know if it's uh, it's like that. I, I do think it's very promising when it comes to like coordination technology um, and uh, when it comes to, yeah, basically having a really, really strong base uh, on like why we should all be in team consciousness rather than like tribe, you know, create tribes and think like, oh, I am this tribe, you're that tribe, only one can exist. Really what how we should be thinking about this is, hey, how do we, 
create the ideal conditions in this planet such that the states of consciousness that exist in the future are as you know beneficial as positive as smart you know as self-aware as possible and like that that sort of thing yeah this uh, zero ontology state of consciousness can give you a lot of motivation to do and uh in that sense yeah it might be extremely beneficial maybe might even get us get us uh, out of uh, trouble in the future in terms of uh, preventing human conflict. I don't know. It's a it's a hope, and I think it's a there's an interesting case to be made. Um, I guess uh, I'll mention a few last things. One is you know the Library of Babel might be kind of a, a good metaphor. The problem is that in the Library of Babel, you know, and this is a David Pierce idea. You know, you you take one book and it has you know like nonsense written in it a random kind of nonsense, a very specific type of nonsense. It only appears once, uh, that particular string of, of letters. Um, but in a sense, if you, you know, add it back, you know, the, the entirety of the, you know, structure has a lot of information in, in some sense. But what David Pierce might say is that a quantum library of Babel could have just no information that actually starts out as this basically unconstrained state and sure, if you take out a book, so to speak, you add a boundary condition, you know, it constrains the possible paths. Um, in that moment, you know, it looks like there's information there. But in its totality, there really isn't. You know, it's actually the superposition of everything. Um, another thing is uh, uh, David Pierce also mentions that uh, black holes, that right now it's an important thing to, to uh, figure out because they may hold a bit of a cl key clue in here, um, especially because uh, some physicists worry that black holes destroy information and like you know there's uh, some theorems about like how information is still preserved at the surface of the black hole um, and so on but uh, yeah basically if black holes were to actually destroy information that would be against the zero ontology so that's uh, that's an important thing to figure out and i guess i'll conclude with this funny phrase which is uh, uh you know in epistemology um it's true that, you know, you want your theories to basically explain specific things, because if you have a theory that explains a lot, it kind of has a lot of variables. It can, like, explain why whatever you presented would happen. In some sense, that theory is very likely to just overfit. So there's kind of this phrase to kind of make this intuitive, which is a theory that explains everything explains nothing. And David Pierce would say, exactly <laughs> to explain everything you need to explain nothing and i think if we focus our energies and we create better mediums of thought to think about this nothing we may as a consequence explain it all uh this has been a wonderful time and uh, thank you for tuning in uh i hope you have a wonderful day uh, see you next time.